Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Inquiring minds want to know. I had to go to Google to remember whom I should credit with that saying, and lo and behold, it was the National Enquirer. <laughs> As of 2018, the National Enquirer had a circulation of 265,000. That's a lot of readers, isn't it? And of course, what that saying, inquiring minds want to know, indicates that there are things that are veiled, they're secret, and people who are curious, and most of us have a certain level of curiosity, I'm curious about certain things and could care less about other things, I'm sure, but what I do know is that the Lord has given this truth to us in the book of Deuteronomy 29, 29. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons, i.e. children. We have so much that is available to us in terms of knowing who God is, knowing what He wants for us, knowing what His plans are, not just for us, but for mankind. During this last two years, we have had a lot of opportunity to think about the brevity of life, the fragility of life, all the things associated with life that remind us of our own finitude, that we're finite people, and that there is a day coming when our lives will end. But we're concerned, aren't we, about what we think might be the beginning of the end, None of us really knows. People have thought about that for 2,000 years. But what we do know is we're closer today than we were yesterday. Isn't that true? Certainly it is. And when we think about the second coming of Jesus, we have looked recently at Matthew chapter 24, and I invite you to go there for just a moment, a quick look again at what is known as the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. It's recorded in a little different form in the Gospel of Mark as well as the Gospel of Luke. But what we have discovered so far in Matthew 24 is that there are certain things that are preceding the tribulation. And what we do also know is that the Lord says in verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Of course, that raises a big question in our minds. What is meant by the abomination of desolation spoken of in the book of Daniel? If you would, turn over to the book of Daniel for a moment. We're going to take a look at some of the writings of Daniel. This is the Word of God, and it's amazing when you stop to consider how the Word of God 
speaks so clearly and is not contradictory in any way. What I'd like to do is begin by looking at the ninth chapter, which gives us a timeline of the individual whom we have come to know as Antichrist. It may surprise you that only one biblical writer speaks of the Antichrist, and that biblical writer is the Apostle John. He does not speak of the Antichrist in his gospel. He doesn't even use the word Antichrist, although he speaks of the one who is the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. He speaks in 1 John chapter 2 about the Antichrist. And he says this Antichrist is one who has several underlings which are simply described as Antichrists. Even in the first generation of believers, there were expressions of Antichrist in the form of people who had been associated with the church and then had left. You may recall also in Matthew 24, I believe it's the 24th verse, where in describing what it's going to be like during the Great Tribulation, Jesus talks about false Christs. Do you remember that passage? There will be many false Christ and false teachers. That era that will come to a head as far as human history is concerned, and it has been this way all the way back to the first generation of the church, there are false Christs and false teachers. The word antichrist or the name antichrist, the prefix is anti or anti, depending on your pronunciation. And that word suggests two things. It's actually a preposition in the language of the New Testament. It can mean against, which it does mean in the case of the Antichrist. He is against the true Christ. But also it can be used to mean instead of. And certainly that is true of the Antichrist because he usurps the place of Christ. He builds himself as the Christ he wants to be worshipped and he goes to great lengths to ensure that he is worshipped. He is the abomination of desolation. In 168 B.C., the abomination of desolation showed up in response to the prophecy that is made in the book of Daniel. Showed up in the form of a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire. I won't go into detail about that except to say when Alexander the Great died at a very young age, 32 or 33, his kingdom was divided into four parts and one was founded by Seleucid. And the Seleucids were people from whom this man Antiochus Epiphanes was descended. And he had it in for the Jewish people. He showed his disdain for them by going to them, first by sea, then by land, and then as he made his march from the coast of what we now know as Israel, from the Mediterranean Sea, and as he went, he dealt 
death all along the way. And then he came to complete the statement that he had begun to make when he landed on that shore and he climaxed it with an exclamation point when he took a statue of his primary god, Zeus, into the temple, went into the place where the sacrifice for atonement was made, placed that statue in that place, and then he had a pig brought in in sacrifice. Abomination of desolation. The desecration of the temple of God. The abomination of desolation also occurred in AD 70 when Titus Flavius, who later became a Caesar, besieged Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. There was hardly a stone left standing. The wailing wall there in Jerusalem is the only remnant of not the temple proper, but the temple area that still stands today. And in so doing, once more, the temple was desecrated by the abomination of desolation. These men were forms of antichrists. But what we do know is the final figure will someday come and he will take his position there. Let's begin now looking at the timeline of these events in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 24. Gabriel has come to Daniel and he's delivered some news to him and this is the heart of it. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, Look at the three things that are promised by God through Gabriel to Daniel and then transferred to us today. What was going to happen? Seventy weeks. The week represented seven years in this chronology. Seven years. Seventy weeks times seven years is 490 years. We're going to see if you apply simple mathematics to what we are seeing in this particular part of Daniel, what you soon discover is how precise God was in fulfilling his prophecy. The first 69 weeks were weeks that ended with Jesus Christ's passion, his death and resurrection. Ever since there, there has been an interval of waiting for the last week the last seven years, that period of time which we call and the Bible calls more importantly the Great Tribulation. It's been a long time, hasn't it, to wait? But the Lord does not become impatient like we do. He has a purpose in mind, and we see what the purpose for this interval is. After all those years, 483 years, then there was this hiatus, this Stoppage, if you would, for the progression toward the fulfillment of the 70 weeks. And here was the purpose, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity among the people of Israel. That has been the goal and will be the final outcome of the 70 weeks or 490 years 
And the tribulation will be the capstone on that, the great tribulation. And then to bring in everlasting righteousness. Do you remember when the book of Luke talks about a man who was demonized? This man had Christ to come into his life and he cast the demon out. The demon left, could not find another host. So what did he do? What every good demon would do. Demons who stay together, stick together. He found more demons and he led them back to the man from whom he had been exercised. And lo and behold, there was a void in his life. And so that demon goes back into him and carries all those demons with him. The Lord's salvation is not complete with the finishing of the transgression, the end of sin, the making atonement, but also it's the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Verse 25 says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, total of 69, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So to rebuild the city. In 445 B.C., Artaxerxes, the Persian ruler, issued a decree. The decree was, in part, for Nehemiah to go and lead in the building of the wall to secure the city of Jerusalem. When you begin to do the math, what you discover is the seven weeks were the 49 years that were required to get all the building done of the wall and of the temple being restored. And then the last 62 weeks began. 62 times seven weeks began. And this all occurred with great precision until the Messiah, that would be Jesus, the Prince, showed up. When you do the math here, what you discover is that that time going from 445 B.C. to around the time of Jesus' ministry, even some would say have done the math how they get to that point, I must admit, I'm not quite sure, but that the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem in what we call his triumphal entry, it was to the day. Well, even if that is not the case, this is an amazing piece of confirmation of the truth of God's word, isn't it? We see this. Look at verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That happened to Jesus, didn't it? At the end of those 69 weeks when you put the seven weeks for the rebuilding of the city and the temple with the other 62 that's what we see in his passion and the people of the prince who is to come now this is the antichrist by the way will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood even to the end there will be war desolations are determined and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Let's stop here just a moment. This is a b very important. This is how we will know that 
the person who is Antichrist definitely is. He will sign a covenant for seven years with the people of Israel. And it will give those people such relief that this one, this great prince, and we're going to see some of his characteristics. We may not get all of them, but he had some incredible traits. He was very persuasive. He was what we would call a charismatic person in the best sense of that word. He was a man who was able to promise people peace. Peace. Two weeks ago, we looked from Ezekiel 38 and 39 about a coalition from the north. We can pinpoint that as being in the region of Russia, Moscow, with a leader whose name Gog and the region is Magog. And remember, there was a coalition between Gog and Magog, and then there are several other mentions. And what it boils down to is it's a coalition between armies that will be headed by Russia and a coalition of Muslims. Wow, pretty interesting mixture there. And how they're going to go down and they're going to have every intention and all the power and without resistance evidently from outside countries, they're going to bear down on Jerusalem to destroy it and put an end to all the Jewish people who dwell there. And then miraculously, God is going to deliver those people. And it's going to be devastating. 90% of that army of Gog will be destroyed. Just a bare remnant. It will take years to bury all the bodies and to burn all the weaponry that is left. And the massive destruction is phenomenal. And you can imagine how these Jews, when this man of peace comes and he offers them this promised covenant and they sign the covenant and for three and a half years, it's going to be pretty good for the Jewish nation for sure. But as we'll see a little later at the midpoint, things turn upside down. It says, in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Sacrifices have been taking pl taken place in the rebuilt temple. And then he will put an end to that. All of a sudden, he's had a dramatic shift in his attitude toward Israel. Abominations will come. One who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now here's the good news. The story ends well for us because the period when this Antichrist is in charge and wreaking havoc against people whom we would call followers of Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile, there is a terminal point for him. And there is a destination for him that is the lake of fire as it's described in the book of Revelation. Let's go to the book of Revelation now. Look at the 13th chapter from which we read earlier. To get more insight into the traits of and 
the tactics of the Antichrist. Verse, 13, verse 1 of chapter 13 of Revelation, and he, that would be the dragon, and who would the dragon be? We meet him a lot, do we not, in the book of Revelation? Who is the dragon? Satan is the dragon, of course. In John, 1 John chapter 5, near the end of the book or epistle, John describes this dragon as the evil one. He says the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. And that is so true when it comes to this whole matter of the great tribulation. And look what the revelator records. And I saw a beast. This would be the description of Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Coming up out of the sea. The sea is usually associated in biblical prophecy in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel with Gentiles, non-Jewish people. This has led some to say that the Antichrist cannot be a Jew, has to be a Gentile. And there are others who take exception to that. He does, after all, do a great kindness to the nation of Israel. Isn't that true? And he goes and signs a pact with them and they gladly receive him. He could conceivably be a Jew Jewish person too. Are there any indications in the history of Israel recorded in the Bible of true descendants of Abraham turning against the one true God? Believe me. I can think of one which came to mind immediately, Manasseh, the king who reigned the longest of any king in Judah. Amazing. A wicked man he was. The difference between him and Antichrist is he got converted at the end of his life. I don't know how the Lord could save the guy. He was so wicked. But wicked people opposed to the one true God in the history of Israel, sometimes we're related to him. I'm not advocating for the Antichrist being a Jewish person. We probably just have to wait and see. It goes on to say, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Now let me stop with the idea of the blasphemous names on his head. Some sort of headgear, perhaps, that he wore, maybe a turban, or something that would indicate that he sees himself, declares himself, acts as if, and does have some powers that seem divine, he calls himself God. That's the blasphemy. He puts himself instead of Christ, instead of God. He substitutes himself in that position. Let's go to chapter 7 of Daniel. As we take another look at Daniel for further understanding of what we read over in the book of Revelation 13. Let's begin with verse 2 of chapter 7. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different one from another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. 
I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind also was given to it. Time will not permit for us to go to the second chapter, but you remember in the second chapter of Daniel, Daniel records an event that occurred in his life. It was like Daniel's coming out party, really, where he was recognized as being such a wise man, wise beyond any of the other wise men in the whole kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. In the dream, he saw this statue and he wanted it to be interpreted, that is, the dream. So he called his wise men in. He said, interpret this, and if you don't, you're going to die. And the problem is, for you, is you got to tell me what the dream is and then interpret it. Well, you can imagine the panic that struck into the hearts of all those guys. And they were shook up, to say the least. But someone spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and said, Sir, there is a young Hebrew and he has the capacity to interpret dreams. Would you like us to secure his services for you? And he said, of course. And so Daniel comes and he explains this multi-metaled image. The head gold and the next level silver and the next level Brass, and then the next level, iron, and then finally, iron mixed with clay. There is a, a relationship of sorts here between that particular situation and this, what we're reading here. In verse 4, the lion with the wings of an eagle, that was a symbol of Babylon. In fact, if we had lived that day and we had entered through the gates, we would see such a figure of man that had the face of a lion and the wings of an eagle. So it's referring to the Babylonian empire in verse 4. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. Now, please understand, each successive beast devours the previous beast. In other words, destroys and takes over that kingdom. In this case, this is a reference to the Medo-Persian Empire, which came in and took over Babylon. And these figures are figures that would be familiar to Daniel, of course, and to other people. Verse 6 says, After this I kept looking, and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. This would be Alexander the Great's empire, and the four segments that were left, and how his empire was divided among four different people. We might call it the Greek empire. And it, in fact, devoured the Medo-Persian empire. Verse 7 says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. This is the Antichrist, by the way. These are some of the traits of the Antichrist. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. It's not just the Antichrist. 
It's the nation, it's most people believe a revival of the Roman Empire as it relates to the end times as we call them. Ten horns would be representative of ten nations and these nations would be found in Europe. I remember as a boy, I was trying to think when that time was. I didn't take the time, I apologize for that, to look up the actual timing of this, somewhere around 1960s or the early 60s. You remember the common market? You remember that? And all the concern and the stir about the common market that this was the beginning of the end? Do you remember that? None, many of you don't. You weren't even living then. We who are older might remember that. But what we know is that those countries, some people say when the EU was being formed, the European Union, they were saying, hey, this is it. This is it. Well, there's been some addition. More, there are more than 10 there, right? Well, we don't know exactly when. That number could be reduced to 10. We just don't know. We just need to be alert and aware of what's going on. He, in verse 8, he says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. This is the actual Antichrist, the little horn. And the Antichrist will come out of nowhere, basically. What we know is, if you'll... If we were to go back to Revelation, I'm keeping my place over there. I hope you are too. What we see, the first mention of this beast, the Antichrist, by John in the Revelation in 11.7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. So the beast, he's from the abyss. He is straight from the devil, isn't he? And he's going to show up and he's going to root out three of these leaders or kings of nations are going to be ousted by him and he's going to wield a greater bit of power and influence among the others, kings. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Here's another quality. If you want to call it quality, it's not a good quality. Whatever the opposite of quality is, that's what it is. He is a big braggart. He boasts. Now, just for application to us for just a moment. The Bible talks about boasting and says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's a quotation that Paul borrows. It's recorded at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from Jeremiah. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows the Lord. If anything we can say about our Lord, there's so many things we can say about Jesus, the real Christ. But he was humble, wasn't he? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. He submitted himself to the will of his Father in order that he could save us from our sins. Praise God for that kind of humility. Totally absent from the Antichrist. You can see how 
utterly different he is from the anti from our Lord Christ. Let's go back to chapter 13 and reread the first verse and then make our way down through the passage and quickly here. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven hands and on his horns, horns were ten diadems that would be crowns and on his heads were blasphemous names and the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. The Antichrist is at the beck and call of Satan. He does the bidding of Satan. And verse 3 says, And I saw on his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. This is another thing that will happen to the Antichrist. The Antichrist will suffer a wound to the head, and some people say it won't kill him, others say it will kill him, but I believe the answer to that question is, yes, he will die, and he will come back to life. Can you see how Satan would stage that? Because if he came back to life, it would prove he is the Christ, wouldn't it? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. Of course, we're going to see what's going to happen to him. He's going to be thrown in the lake of fire forever and ever. Amen. And they worshipped, verse 4, the dragon. Why? Because he gave his authority to the beast. It's Satan worship. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? The beast is awesome, is what they're saying. He is one who has promised us peace. And He's promised us prosperity. I'm going to jump all the way to the end of the 13th chapter in case I run out of time, which is likely. That the beast is the one who conveys the number of the beast to humankind. If they want to buy and sell, they're going to have to have the mark of the beast either on their hand or on their forehead. There are all kinds of speculations about that. We don't know exactly if it'll be tattooed on us or it'll be imprinted by some kind of chip on us. I mean, I've heard all kinds of things, but suffice it to say, he is going to pro promise peace and prosperity if we bow the knee to him. That is the question. It will be a question of life or death. And I'm not just talking about physical life or physical death. This life we live is fleeting. I was just reading in the Psalms earlier, just a few days ago, and I can't remember which one. I think it's the 45th Psalm. And the psalmist pleads with the Lord. He says, Lord, make me know my end. And I found my heart resonating with that. Of course, I'm an old man. Why wouldn't I? But, Lord, let me know my end. Not because I'm for afraid, but because I want to make sure that whatever life you give me and whatever mind you give me, that I may 
be filled with the mind of Christ and I will be useful to you. I won't be afraid, Lord, if we are in the last days. In a way we are. But in this great tribulation, Lord, help us. Help us not to cave in. Francis Schaeffer, great Christian philosopher, back in the 1970s gave a speech to a congregation that was probably at a place like the Astrodome. It was in Houston. It was a big convocation of believers. And I heard the speech not in person, but on cassette tape. Remember cassette tapes? I heard on cassette tape. And he made this assessment about culture. He was a student of the culture, but he was more a student of the scripture. And this is what he said. He said, anybody who can promise and deliver on personal peace and personal prosperity, people will follow that person anywhere without question. Let us never make a compromise due to pressure that is placed upon us by the world when it comes to such things. Look at verse 5. And there was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. This dude is tough with words. He's tough, but he's clever with his words. And authority to act for 42 months was given him. Who gave him the authority? Well, we could say Satan did. But in ultimately, who does Satan belong to? Yes, what Luther said, don't forget, Satan is God's devil. Our God is a sovereign God. In Daniel 4.32, the Bible says, the Most High rules over the realm of mankind. Satan has been given authority over the world, meaning that dark realm that is his domain, but ultimately he answers to God. And he will answer big time as will the beast. And verse 6 says, He opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them in authority over every tribe and people, a tongue, and nation was given to him. He's going to rule the whole world. It's going to be a one-world government. Be alert. A one-world economy. Be alert, a one-world religion. Wow. And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If our lives are written in the book of life, due to the work of Christ on our behalf, the word slain means literally butchered. Jesus was butchered for our salvation. We're safe. And our safety is not to be viewed simply as a big sigh of relief, but as an assignment to help those who do not know Christ. There are going to be a lot of scared people, and for good reason, when the tribulation begins. Great tribulation. But we who know Christ, if any of us are here, and I'm not wishing to be there, but it won't surprise me if I am. It's not because I don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture. It's because I think 
a lot of us are going to be there who know Jesus. And we'll be men and women who have a lot of people who are looking to us for answers because the Spirit of God will be moving in their heart and they'll know there's only one answer and they're looking for it. They don't know exactly what it is. It's not a what, it's a he. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And we can just share Jesus with them and the power of the gospel will change those people's lives and the ranks of the saints on earth will grow to the glory of God. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. Here we see the sovereignty of God talking about us. Some of us will become captives. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. That's talking about the judgment, I believe, upon the Antichrist and his forces. Here is the perseverance in the faith of the saints. Now, I'm going to give a cursory consideration of the last part of the chapter. Here's another trait of the beast, the Antichrist. He's a delegator. He has a henchman who carries out all or a lot of his dirty work. Let's read about him. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. Well, that'd be like the devil, right? And what do we know about the devil's tactics? What we do know is he is like a roaring lion, restlessly, restlessly roaring, seeking someone to devour. And verse 12 says, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, in the presence of the first beast. He is given the authority by the beast who gets his authority from the devil. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs. This is the, this is the false prophet referred to in the 19th chapter of Revelation. So that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. Remember when Moses was used by God to bring the plagues upon Egypt. Do you remember that? And the first two plagues were duplicatable through the magic arts of the magicians of Egypt and Pharaoh. But they reached an end of their power. Look, this reminds me of this fire coming down the heavens when Elijah is facing off on Mount Carmel with prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Baal. He faces off and he says the God who answers by fire is God. And we see that in that 18th chapter of 1 Kings and verse 8, 14 rather. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So one of the things this false prophet will do, called a beast as well, his responsibility will be to make sure people worship. There'll be shrines all over the place in homes and all over public places. Shrines to the beast, the Antichrist, the one who was dead and has come back to life. Verse 15, And there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This seems probable, if not possible, doesn't it? 
It, it is because all of the technology, you can see how you could have what looks like a, a statue and all of a sudden, boom. Well, we know that this is what the false prophet's going to do, take this image with him. I don't know what size it'll be or anything like that, but what we do know is he will be able to put it in front of people and the beast, the Antichrist, will speak to people. That'll wow the crowds, won't it? False Christ for sure. And he calls his all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. Then he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark. Either the name or the number, the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. We have been inundated all of my life with suggestions about who the Antichrist is and the number of the, of the Antichrist, the beast. And we just be, be sure, look, don't take anything on your hand or on your forehead. Okay? Because it's showing we have caved in to Satan and to the beast and to his false prophet. To conclude, I ask you to go with me to 2 Timothy, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to read beginning with verse 3 and make a comment or two along the way and we'll be finished. Verse 3 says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that would be the return of Christ, unless the apostasy comes first. There'll be a falling away. We've seen that in Matthew 24. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That would be the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Not just the one true God, but all other facsimiles of the one true God. He will take exception with them and he will wipe them out as far as he's capable of doing. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Here's the abomination of desolation, isn't it? Paul's writing here. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? These were important to Paul. He told them, and some people believe Thessalonica, the letter to the first Thessalonians was the first letter written. It was one of the first places Paul went and planted a church. It was important. Verse 6 says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness of those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Have you received the love of the truth 
Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Don't wait until it's clear that we are in the great tribulation to give your life to Christ if you haven't. Get right with Christ. Give Him your life. Today is the day of salvation. Is what the book of 2 Corinthians 6 says. Could it be that today is the day of your salvation? Has the Lord spoken to your heart? Indicating you need to give Him not just lip service, but your heart today. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Let's pray. How do you do that, Mike, you say? You just humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I've been trying to live this life by myself. I've wanted a little bit of you, Lord, but I haven't given my whole heart to you, so I want to do that today. Please help me, Lord, to fulfill such a commitment. Use me, Lord, for whatever life I have left to honor you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.